Well, hey, y'all, Tyler McKenzie here from Northeast Christian Church, and thanks for listening to our podcast today. We hope that our messages are equipping you to unleash Jesus' love every day, everybody, everywhere. If this podcast has impacted you at all, we would love to invite you to partner with us by giving to our Love the Ville outreach offering. I just remind you, 100% of that goes to serving the least and the lost in our community and around the world. This is what our church wants to be known for. So please prayerfully consider making a gift if we've blessed you at all. You can go to nechurch.org slash give for the details. And now we'll send you over to the podcast. Do me a favor, uh, stand. Uh, once again, stand. We're going to read scripture together. Uh, if you can't stand, that's okay. Just put your heart in a place of reverence uh, under the authority of God's word here. And uh, last week I read a whole chapter from John. This week we're just going to read one verse. And since it's just one verse, I would like for you to read this together with me. So these are the words of Jesus, John 16, 33. Let's, let's read them together. I have told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth... You will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. You can be seated. The words of Jesus, the words of the Lord. Thanks be to God for every last word of his word. Okay, so we are in week three of a sermon series called uh, Finding Peace in an Anxious World. And relevant, relevant, yes. It is relevant, especially uh, this time of year. The goal of this series is to equip you with spiritual truths, spiritual strategies, spiritual resources to beat back the anxiety that many of us are feeling that gets intensified during this Christmas season. I don't know if you've noticed it, but we live in an anxious country right now, and we only get more anxious during Christmas time few statistics for you. You saw these if you were here last week. 27.3% of American adults have anxiety problems. 41.7% of young adults, that's 18 to 29, suffer from anxiety. And again, Christmas is not the most wonderful time of the year. NAMI, the National Alliance of Mental Illness, calls it the most difficult time of the year. In 2014, they found 64% of people with mental illness say the holidays make their conditions worse. And a 2021 survey showed three in five Americans feel their mental health is negatively impacted by the holidays. Now, come on, that's not how it's supposed to work. You've seen the Hallmark movies, haven't you? Like, this is supposed to be a time of, of peace on earth, joy to the world. But isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting that there is such a disconnect between our hopes for Christmas and the actual reality of it? You see, what we envision is, uh, is long days in our Christmas pajamas, matching family Christmas pajamas, fire crackling, hot chocolate in a Christmas-themed mug, and the kids opening up their toys with delight and playing with them. That's what we envision. But the reality of it is, your kids open the presents in about six minutes, and then they say, Mom, can I have my iPad now? And you're like, what did I even get this for? Magical, isn't it? Uh, what you envision is a blanket of snow outside, sledding. You finally get an opportunity to wear those cute mittens. That's, that's what you envision. But the reality of it is in Kentucky, 
It's TBD. The weather is TBD. It could be, it could be snowing. It could be 78 degrees outside. Nobody knows. The weatherman doesn't know. Your dad doesn't know. All of a sudden, when you get 60, apparently, when you're 60 year old dad, you, you know everything about the weather. I just, my dad, it's all he watches, right? So he can tell me the way, he can tell me the weather and also four different routes about how to get from here to here. You don't even live in Kentucky anymore, dad. Yeah, but if you'll take the Snyder, to, okay, appreciate that, right? But you don't know, you just don't know what, what the weather's going. Here's one thing you do know. If there is snow predicted, all the milk and bread will be gone because milk sandwiches are essential, but you don't know anything else. We'll do one more. Uh, what you envision during Christmas season is a family meal with the extended family coming together, mom, dad, children, grandparents, aunts and uncles and cousins all coming together around one table in peace in harmony. That's what you envision. <laughs> but what you get is triggered after three hours of discussing the latest conspiracy theories with people who didn't vote like you right? Merry Christmas. Uh, Christmas is the teenager who can't even be present with their family because they're just scrolling, thinking about how everyone else's life is better than theirs. Christmas is the young adult who barely survived the holiday season because they were lonely and half depressed. And they get the New Year's and they set these huge New Year's resolutions to overcompensate only to fail like week three. Christmas is the working dad or the working mom that just goes, goes, and then goes some more through the month of December. And by the time you get to Christmas Day, you just crash and burn. You got nothing left. You spent it all. December was all productivity, no delight for you. Or Christmas is the elderly couple who begs their kids to bring the grands for just a couple of days, please, please. But when the grands get there, you can't wait for them to leave. Because <laughs> they've disrupted what? The monotony that you wanted to escape from to begin with? Merry Christmas. Hey, re reality check, y'all. I said it last week, I'll say it again. There is nothing inherently magical about the day, December 25th, one of the coldest and darkest days of the year. You do know Jesus was probably born sometime in September, right? There's nothing magical about it. In fact, the values upon which our economy have built Chris, uh, Christmas on look absolutely nothing like the Middle Eastern baby that this holiday is supposedly celebrating. So if you're putting some sort of redemptive pressure on a consumerized, cold, dark day to save you, I promise you it's not going to live up to it. And you're just going to be another casualty to the holiday anxiety and disappointment. See, the only thing that makes this season truly magical is if what we believe about Jesus is true. If the one who in the beginning created all things, then stooped down and became one of us? And then stooped down even lower and became our sin? And now he's seated at the place of highest honor with the name above every other name and at the name of Jesus, every knee will one day bow because he is the king of the future on the cosmic throne of the universe. Now, if that's true, Merry Christmas.
And maybe this season does, in fact, have something to offer us. But this is what this series is about. Uh, so that's why in week one, uh, we challenged you to choose hope. Choose hope this year over despair. Uh, last week, we challenged you to choose confession. Confession over concealment. You gotta bring that which is in the dark out into the light if you want to break its power. Today, I wanna challenge you to, uh, to choose perseverance over fragility. Perseverance. Perseverance, by the way, if I had to give you like top five most popular themes in the Bible, this has gotta be one of it. You just can't read a book. You almost can't read a chapter without this theme coming up and the people of God being told to persevere, persevere, just persevere a little bit longer. So I want to encourage you today to persevere in a society that is anxious because of its fragility. Now, I read a book recently uh, by a social uh, psychologist named Jonathan Haidt and uh, a journalist named Greg Lukianoff. The book is called The Coddling of the American Mind. I think we have a picture of the, the cover here. Any, anybody read this book before? Man, I'll tell you what, my book choices is on point with the congregation. Way to know the flock, Tyler. Um, okay, nobody's read it. Well, it's a good, it's a, like a mega New York Times bestseller, y'all. So it's not some obscure book and a rare book. I read those too, but like this is one that you, maybe you've heard of before. Maybe not. Um, okay, so it's a bestseller. And, um, and in the book, they make a, a compelling argument. They argue that there are three great untruths, three great untruths that have been accepted as truths wreaking havoc on our society today, especially the emerging younger generations. Here are the three great untruths. Uh, untruth number one is the untruth of fragility. Uh, what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. This is the idea we should protect ourselves and protect our children from pain, from suffering at all costs. Adversity, risk, struggle, it's always bad, so keep it far, far away. Untruth number two is the untruth of emotional reasoning. Emotional reasoning. Always trust your feelings. Never question them. The voice inside is the authentic you. So don't Adjust your feelings in order to meet the common good of your community. Rather, trust your feelings at an identity level and then demand your community adjust to you. Follow your heart, make your truth, then demand people join in. Untruth number three, the untruth of us versus them. See this played out in the political sector a lot. It's the idea that life's a battle between good and evil people. Oh, and by the way, guess who the good people are? You, of course, and everybody who agrees with with you, you're the good people and anyone who disagrees with you on anything, they're the bad people and the goal is to shame them off the stage, shame them into submission. It's a zero sum war too. So play for keeps. The three untruths. Now, as I go through those, uh, some of you wanna say, amen, I praise, I see it, I see it, Tyler. That's what's wrong with our country today. Uh, but others of you probably kind of like rolling your eyes like, okay, th this is exactly what I need at church today. A couple more gray hairs telling me I'm a snowflake. Well, I'll say this to you. Uh, these guys are not gray hairs. That's not the goal of their, uh, their, their book here. Um, these are educators. These are academics. It's, it's all research-based. Height's an atheist, by the way. One of the authors, he's an atheist. So it's not a Christian book. So they have a religious agenda. 
What they're simply trying to do is take some of the unspoken truths of our society and just show how untrue and unhealthy they are. In fact, they have three criteria that they say uh, made these three truths great untruths. Criteria number one is that all three of these untruths stand against what ancient wisdom says. By ancient wisdom, they mean the ancient philosophers and religions that have come before us. Criteria number two for a great untruth is that it stands against psychological research for what creates well-being. All three of these untruths do not create a healthier you. I know you were told to follow your heart. I know you were told to try to avoid pain at all costs, but that doesn't actually create a healthier, healthier you. And, and the third criteria form is that they actually bring harm to the individuals and communities that they're in. One, two, and three, if they meet those, it's a great untruth. All three, there's a great untruths. Now, to illustrate these in the book, um, they pull out cultural phenomena uh, like, um, uh, like helicopter parenting, like cancel culture and call out culture, like the, the overzealous speech codes on college campuses or uh, just the overall victim complex that we see in our country today. As like cultural artifacts, if you will, that show the untruths in action. So I just want to give you a couple examples that they, they use in the book. I found them fascinating. This right here is a picture of Lenore Skenazi, if I'm pronouncing her last name right. She's a Yale and Columbia graduate, smart lady, uh, author, New York City mother of two. And she has been dubbed America's worst mom. She's the worst. Literally, like that's, what she, that's her nickname, America's worst mom. Now, why? Well, uh, because 15 years ago, she permitted her nine-year-old son, Izzy, uh, to ride the New York City subway by himself in order to develop independence. After lots of practice, one Sunday she dropped Izzy off on one side of New York City with a Metro card, $20, and a bunch of quarters so he can make calls. And if you're like, quarters and calls, what's that? Ask your parents later. It's a different time. It's a different time. But she, she, she handed him off to him. She said, all right, son. We've practiced this, now find your way home. And guess what? 45 minutes later, Izzy found his way home. He made it. And he was ecstatic that he did. He had accomplished something that he felt like was a really, really big deal. Now, Skenazi then uh, wrote about her parenting philosophy and this experiment in the New York Sun. And uh, does anybody wanna guess how the public received it? Not good, not good. Many people were horrified at this, but she went viral. She was doing all the main talk shows. She was on all the main news stations, doing the podcast circuit, all the stuff, right? And that was when she was dubbed by some of her readers, America's worst mom. And they weren't kidding. It's what they thought. But it was a title that she embraced. And uh, she later developed a parenting movement that she called free range parenting. God, I love it. Now, let me be clear. I have to be clear when I'm in the pulpit. Here's what I'm not suggesting. I'm not suggesting that you take little Timmy to E-Town later. <laughs> and you drop him off and say, hey, buddy, catch an Uber. Here's $5 for DQ. You know, like, first off, $5 won't buy you anything at DQ anymore. DQ. So give him 20 all right? And second, I'm, just not, I'm not suggesting that. You all know your kids, right? But, but what I want you to think about, honestly think about is how were you raised? Think about that. 
At what age were you allowed to go outside unsupervised and just wander the woods or the neighborhood? At what age were you uh, challenged to take care of yourself in real significant life, you know, responsibility sort of ways? And make, make your breakfast. You walk to school, do your laundry. Uh, at what point did your parents start removing those walls of protection so that you could grow and develop as a young man or a young woman? I can remember for me, it was pretty young. It was younger than what we do today. I can remember riding my bike all around the neighborhood, long days lost in the woods, riding my bike up to the grocery store or the gas station to you know, buy a Gatorade or, or get a snack. Uh, and here, well, here's the interesting thing is that statistics show that the world is actually much safer today than it was 30 years ago. Hmm. I'll show you another picture. This is a picture of Nassim Tlaib. He's a Lebanese-American mathematician. And he actually developed this theory called uh, the anti-fragility, the anti-fragility of humans. Have you heard of this, anti-fragility? So basically this is his theory. Human beings need uh, physical and mental challenges and stressors uh, or else we will deteriorate over time. So uh, think, for example, your muscles, right? Your muscles need appropriate levels of stress in order to develop. We call that working out. Too much rest will make your muscles weak. You'll lose range of motion. And uh, you basically got to break them down to build them up. Same thing with your immune system. Your immune system needs to um, encounter stressors, if you will, in order to bolster it and make it stronger. I swear, if you got three kids in the home who are under the age of nine, your immune system is a steel trap. We should be looking for the COVID vaccine there in your immune system because the stuff that you encounter, as I'm just saying, if you work in a preschool, God help you. You could live forever right now. Uh, so basically what Talib does is he actually, actually asks us to distinguish between three kinds of things. You can throw the slide back up there again. Uh, he says there are things that are fragile. This is like a, a China teacup, you know, where if you drop it, it shatters everywhere and it can't fix itself, can't heal itself. So there's fragile things. Uh, second, there are things that are resilient. This is like a toddler cup where if you drop it, it you know, bounce off the ground, it's fine. Like you can drop it, you can throw it off that, you can throw it out of a moving vehicle. Seen that one before, okay? And you can just pick it, it's fine, it's fine. But still it can't heal itself if it gets scarred or scratched up. And then last, there are things that are anti-fragile. These are things that actually require stress, that require challenges in order to learn, adapt, and grow. And Talib says that human beings fall in that category. Uh, so that's why in the book, Haidt and Lukianoff say that it's okay to introduce some levels of stress. Again, uh, Another example, in the book, they critique uh, the cultures that have been created on a lot of college campuses that are censoring certain uh, ideologies. Have you heard some of these stories? Uh, so uh, let me show you a picture. This is a picture of Van Jones. Uh, Van Jones, uh, you might uh, know the guy. He's, he's popular uh, on-screen uh, talent and personality. Uh, he's a lawyer, political analyst, uh, served in the Obama administration, so respected. Um, and in 2017, he was doing a, a Q&A at the University of Chicago's Institute for Politics. And at that Q&A, he was asked about students boycotting speakers in the name of, of creating safe spaces on campus. And I thought his response was just brilliant. This is a brilliant answer. 
Uh, so this is what he said. I'll read it to you. A long quote, but I'll read it. He says, uh, there are two ideas about safe spaces. One is a very good idea. One is a terrible idea. The idea of being physically safe on campus, not being subjected to sexual harassment and physical abuse or being targeted personally for some kind of hate speech, he said, I am perfectly fine with that. So that, that's the good safe space. But he says, there's another view that is now ascendant, which I think is, is just a horrible view which is that, and I quote, I need to be safe ideologically. I need to be safe emotionally. I need to feel good all the time. And if someone says something that I don't like, that's a problem for everybody else, including the college's administration. Jones goes on, he says uh, to these students, he says, I don't want you to be safe ideologically. I don't want you to be safe emotionally. I want you to be strong. That's different. Hmm. He says, I'm not gonna pave the jungle for you. Put on some boots and learn how to deal with adversity. I'm not going to take all the weights out of the gym. He said, that's the whole point of the gym. This is the gym. Now, I think he's right. I think he's right. But let me say this. The whole toughen up, buttercup, you know, mindset can go too far. That's not what he's suggesting, but some do. And it can go too far. I'll show you another picture. Uh, this is a picture of a Navy SEAL uh, named Jocko Willink. Anybody recognize Jocko? Uh, he's also a bestseller. He wrote a book called Extreme Ownership. Um, and he did this YouTube video that went viral where he basically attacks fragility. It's called Good. 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 He's got Jocko. If you ever heard Jocko before, he's got this... Um, I don't know how else to say it other than like this just manly voice. Like, good. You know... My name is Jocko. Good. So that's, that's how, I'll, okay, I'm going to read to you some of the, the lines from his video, all right? I'll do it in the Jocko voice so you can, you can, you can hear it. Yeah. So this is, this is what he says in this, this video. He's like, how do I, do? I'm kidding, I'm not going to do it in the voice. <laughs> I couldn't make it. All right, um, not manly enough. Here's what he says. He says, uh, how do I deal with uh, setbacks, failures, delays, defeats, or other disasters? I actually have a fairly simple way of dealing with these situations, summed up in one word, good. Oh, the mission got canceled? Good. We can focus on another one. Didn't get, to the new, uh, didn't get the new high speed gear we wanted? Good. We can keep it simple. Didn't get promoted? Good. More time to get better. Didn't get funded? Good. We own more of the company. Didn't get the job you wanted? Good. Go out, gain more experience, and build a better resume. Got injured? Good. Needed a break from training. Got tapped out, good. It's better to tap out in training than tap out on the street. Got beat, good, we learned. Unexpected problems, good. We have to figure out a solution. Jocko says, when, the things, uh, when things are going bad, don't get all bummed out, don't get frustrated, no. Just look at the issue and say, good. Now, uh, there's some truth here. There's some truth. But we are not all special force operators. There are failures and tragedies in life that aren't good. There are some that can break a man, traumatize a woman. There are some things that can kill you. It's actually funny, in the comment section, I would never suggest to read the comment section of anything online. This is the cesspool of the universe. Um, this is how people get possessed by demons, I think, reading the comments. But, no, um, so, but in the comment section of this video, 
Um, it's funny, some people recognize the extremes to which Jocko's going here uh, with some of their, their comments back. I'll just read you a couple of them. Uh, one guy wrote, uh, kid, dad, I failed at fifth grade, Jocko. Good. That means you will be older and bigger than the kids in your class, giving you superior tactical advantage over the enemy. <laughs> Next commenter wrote, uh, is soldier. Sir, we're surrounded, Jocko. Good. We can attack our enemy from every direction. The last one here, a uh, guy wrote me, lost my arms, Jocko, good, never skip a leg day. Okay, now that's too far, but look, look, the video has 12 million views. 12 million. He has 1.8 million subscribers on YouTube. So overdoing it or not, you gotta ask yourself, why does Jocko have such a broad appeal? Uh, and the answer is he's pushing back against a, a culture of fragility that we all sense may have gone too far. Now, into this cultural fray, Jesus speaks in John chapter 16. And he speaks 2,000 years ago, but he speaks with incredibly culturally cutting wisdom. He both defies and commends both sides of the argument. And he gives us in this passage spiritual resources to actually face suffering with peace and courage. If you look closely, John 16, 33, I'll read it to you again. Jesus said, I've told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. Now, John 16, 33, you have to understand where it lands in the flow of John. It's the last verse of this incredibly important speech Jesus gives his disciples in the upper room. This is the closing line. After Jesus says this line, he prays in John 17. And then he and his disciples go to the garden, to the place where he will be arrested, tried, and then crucified. That's John 18 and 19. It all happens pretty quickly from this moment forward. He's on a cross within about 12 hours. So in John 13, 14, 15, 16, these are Jesus' last words to his disciples. This is like his commencement speech to them. They've graduated the program, now he's sending them off. These are the last words of a coach to his players in the locker room before they take the field. These are the last words of a commander to his soldiers before they go to the battlefield for war. And in John 13 through 16, I don't, you should go read them later, Jesus says some pretty iconic and foundational things. I've summarized them for you in a few, few bullets here. These are just some things he says. Jesus says, uh, God will bless those who wash the feet of others. Uh, love each other just as Jesus has loved you. Uh, one day you will be with Jesus forever. Jesus is the only way to God. Jesus is the reference point for truth. You are never alone if you have the spirit. Abide in Jesus and you will produce fruit. Apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. Jesus loves you, and he calls you friend. The world will hate you like it hated Jesus. The Spirit will guide you into all truth, and you will see Jesus again. Powerful, powerful truths, core to the Christian faith. And all these truths lead to John 16, 33, the verse we've read today, which is like the exclamation point of the speech. If you're a public speaker, you know, 
you want the last point to move people emotionally. You want it to kind of summarize your call to action and then bring it home, you know? They may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom, you know? Give them nothing, but take from them everything, right? Or is that how it goes? But anyways, like, that's, what, that's how you want. My preaching philosophy when I talk to young preachers is, is, uh, is this. Like, you can take them to the classroom, but eventually, you better take them to church, son. Like, you better, you better go, girl. Like, that's, and that's what Jesus does. He delivers here at the end of the speech. I'll read it to you again. I have told you all this. What's all this? The, the whole speech, John 13 through 16 up to this point. All those truths we just said, that's what he's told us. He said, I've told you all this important stuff so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth, you'll have trials and sorrows, many of them. But take heart, be courageous is what that word means, because I have overcome the world. Now, there are three parts to this verse. Three parts. At first... Jesus gives what, uh, what I'll call here a, a transcultural guarantee, a transcultural guarantee for all of humankind, which means if you're a human in here today, this is a guarantee to you. No matter what time period, no matter what cultural background you come from, man or woman, boy or girl, this is Jesus' guarantee. He says, you will have many trials and sorrows, period. He actually names something here common to every human's experience. Nobody can avoid it. It's the one thing we would all like to avoid. It's what the majority of our time and our effort and our money and our tech and our energy goes to avoiding. It's why some people are religious. They're religious because they want Jesus to give them a pass on all the trials and sufferings of this world. But Jesus doesn't give you a pass here. Instead, he gives you a guarantee. And at least he's honest. But that's not all he says. He also gives two spiritual resources that can help us persevere through the trials and the sorrows. Did you see him? He gives us words that can bring peace. I've told you all these things so you have peace. And he also gives us victory, a promise of victory that will give us courage. Take heart, I've overcome the world. Let's look at these just, just briefly. First, w words that bring peace. Yeah, see that hand in the back. Go ahead. Uh, Tyler, how do words bring peace? What are you talking about? Well, uh, words represent ideas. Jesus understands that. Jesus understands that words represent ideas, and the ideas we believe eventually become who we are. You ever notice that? Dallas Willard, great theologian and philosopher, said it like this. He said, we live at the mercy of our ideas. Hmm. Now, that is why I believe that the devil is in the idea business. He is in the business of planting untrue and unhealthy ideas into our minds and then nurturing them into your life. Because he knows that the words we come to believe, the ideas we come to believe, they become who we are over time. So, for example, if you believe that getting more money or more stuff will somehow make you feel secure, uh, then you won't be secure. You'll actually be really, really anxious and greedy about your money. Ideas come to life. Uh, if you believe that you're, uh, you're, you're unlovable or worthless uh, because your dad was never around when you were a kid, if you believe that, then that father wound will actually warp your relationship with the men in your life or the sons that you try to raise. Uh, if you believe that you have to uh, somehow prove your worth to the world, then 
Uh, that idea will come to life in your workaholism. Or that idea will, uh, it'll come to life in, in how you have to lie and exaggerate about all your successes. Or that idea will, will come to life in the fashion that you, uh, you wear, or the cars that you buy, or the house that you have to live in. You just gotta, you gotta flaunt to the world just how successful you actually are. You see, you see how the ideas come to life? If you uh, believe society's unattainable standards for bodies and beauty, that idea will make you insecure and self-loathing. If you believe that you're smarter than everyone, then guess what? You'll never be wrong, but you also won't have any friends. Idea will come to life. The ideas we believe become who we are. And for the record, the psychology backs this. So uh, in 1960, uh, Aaron Beck, we have a picture of him, delightful chap here. I mean, don't you want this guy to be your grandpa? Like, come on. It's amazing. Um, psychiatrist here from the University of Pennsylvania, um, he developed a, a technique called cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of CBT. This will be a lot of hands. Yeah, look around. Incredible. I've never actually sat under a counselor that... Uh, that has used this, but on a personal level, I use CBT every day. Uh, in his research, uh, Beck noticed that there was this unhealthy cycle that people would go through when they were suffering from anxiety um, or depression or, or something like that. Well, what would happen is, is they would embrace untrue ideas in their minds, like irrational, negative beliefs about themselves or others. Those untrue ideas would manifest themselves into really unhealthy, powerful, negative emotions, Fear, rage, panic, nervousness, sadness, grief, emptiness. And then these negative emotions would lead them to really negative, harmful actions to themselves or others. So in response to this unhealthy cycle, Beck developed CBT. CBT actually teaches you how to interrogate your negative emotions. So... Uh, it actually teaches you how to identify the nine most, what they call the nine most common cognitive distortions that most of us experience. I want to show you the list here. I'm not going to do all these for you. I'll do a few, though, just so you can see how these work. These are, these are the nine most common cognitive distortions that will lead us to negative emotions that lead us to, to, negative, to negative actions. Uh, how about the first one? Emotional reasoning. Emotional reasoning. Uh, this is when you let your negative feelings guide your interpretation of reality. I feel depressed, therefore, I should find another marriage that will make me happy. How about the second one? Catastrophizing. This is focusing on the worst case scenario, you know. Everything is ruined. Everything's not ruined. The, the broccoli casserole got burnt, okay? It's ruined. Nobody eats the broccoli casserole, okay? Like, so everything's not ruined. We're fine, right? But you, you see, um, uh, fifth, mind reading. Mind, this, is a, this is a big one, mind reading. This is assuming you know what people are thinking about you or something that you've done. She's totally judging me. She's not judging you. She doesn't even know your name. Like, what do you she's, You know, but people do this. Uh, how about number six? Labeling. Labeling. Um, assigning negative traits to yourself or others. He's a bigot. He voted Republican. She's a Marxist. She voted Democrat. Do you know her? 
Let me ask you something. This holiday season, or maybe last holiday season, a couple years ago, did you write somebody off because of the way they voted? A family member? Because of how they voted? How about negative filtering? Uh, Number seven. Um, This is when you focus almost exclusively on the negatives. Look at all the things wrong with my body. Anybody do that every morning or every night or both? Or how about the last one, blaming? This is a good one. This is uh, focusing on another person as the source of your problems. And this is all my parents' fault. Now look, the evidence backing, this is incredible. The evidence backing CBT is overwhelming, y'all. A common finding is that CBT works about as well as Prozac and similar drugs for relieving the symptoms of anxiety, uh, anxiety disorders and mild to moderate depression. And it does so with longer lasting benefits and without any of the negative side effects. And why, why? Because CBT recognizes the power of letting the wrong words into your head and into your heart. So would you do me a favor? Uh, Yeah, put put the nine up there, hold it up there for a second. I want you to look at these real quick. Just look at them one more time and think, can you see how someone who habitually engages in these thought patterns, can you see how they would have a very difficult time handling the challenging situations of life? It's because fragile ideas lead to fragile people who get crushed beneath the trials that we're all gonna face, the sorrows that we're all going to encounter. Now, on the flip side, throw Jesus's truths back up there from John 13 to 16. And can you see how this might make a difference? If you believe this, these are the foundational truths of the way of Jesus. This is our version of reality, church. Can you see how this might bring peace and offer courage? Like, if that's true, then this changes everything. Changes everything. These words are are words about our worth. Words about our purpose. Words about our destiny and the divine. Words about flourishing and forgiveness and friendship and failure and forever. These words are Christian reality. And Jesus is claiming that if we embrace this reality, it'll make us into resilient people. People who will experience perseverance rather than fragility, peace in an anxious world. Wow. John 16, I have told you all this, Jesus said, so that you may have peace in me. Which brings us, by the way, to our last point here. Because these words aren't just peace, are they, church? They're also victory and courage. Did you see it? We've gone to the classroom. It's time to go to church here to end, all right? Because you see... Jesus says that psychological technique alone isn't enough, is it? It's something, but telling yourself that you are loved and chosen and worthy, that's all just self-esteemism. If there isn't a transcendent power out there that can validate it, if there isn't a transcendent authority or reference point that actually proves your worth, proves your value, proves your future, proves your destiny. I got bad news for you. If there's no God, you don't matter. You're just matter. You see, 14 billion years ago or whatever, there was a random explosion of matter that accidentally resulted in all this. You are not a precious snowflake though. You do not have a destiny. You will not leave a legacy. One day our world is going to implode because of World War III or explode because a meteor hits us and it's gonna explode the earth into a bajillion different pieces and all the memories that are you are gonna shatter off into outer space. You better hope there are aliens that find it because otherwise nobody will remember. None of it will matter. You're just matter. 
if there's no God. But isn't it interesting? One of the deepest longings of the human heart is to what? Matter. I want to matter. Does anyone care? Does my life make a difference? Or am I just stardust? Now, look, if you believe there is no God, then the answer is no. I've said this before. If, if you believe there's no God, life is a pill. It's just the acquisition of wounds from people who were supposed to love you and then you die. Life is ouch, 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 dead. That's life. <laughs> Unless, of course, Jesus is right. Because you see, the way of Jesus is different. It's not the way of chaos and then death. It's the way of peace and then victory. It says that God made you because he wanted to. He wanted you. He didn't have to, yet he knit you together in your mother's womb, stamped you with his image. You are not an accident. God wants you. Even in the face of your sin and rebellion, God pursues you. Even though he knew that your sin would cost him his very life, Jesus was born for you. This is the beauty of the incarnation, isn't it? The incarnation isn't about fragility, it's about stepping into reality, then enduring its worst in order to bring about what's best for us. What is the cross and the empty tomb? If it's not the greatest proof that endurance through suffering leads to victory. So hear me say this church, anxiety, depression, the pain that comes from life. We see this in almost every character in the Bible, including Jesus. Anxiety and suffering are ancient, but Jesus is more ancient. John 1 verses 1 and 14, in the beginning, the word already existed. The word was with God. That's Jesus, by the way. And the word was God. But then the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the father's one and only son. Praise God. So hear me. Take heart, child of God. Jesus has overcome the world. Your life will go to the high heights, but also to the deep depths. Your life will go from soaring on the wings of eagles to being buried alive by panic and despair. Your life will bring you success and your life will bring you failure. Your life will bring you pleasure and your life will bring you pain. Your life will bring you friends and your life will bring you enemies. Your life will bring you commendation and your life will also bring you persecution. So you need something bigger than life in order to keep you grounded. You need words that are truer than death. You need a capital W word that is more than just words. A word that is God. A word that is full of unfailing love, faithfulness, and the glory of the Father. And you have such a word. That word is Jesus. And he'll give you peace that passes understanding and courage greater than your circumstances. So I don't know what courage looks like for you today, but I can tell you how your spiritual ancestors found it. They came to the sanctuary of the Lord on the Lord's day. They looked for help and care from the body of believers that were around them. They celebrated the church calendar just like this in order to remember key moments in our story like the incarnation. They burnt the advent candles to proclaim light in the darkness. They offered praise to God and thanksgiving for all that they had. They prayed prayers of hope. They sang hymns of victory. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive its king. Let every heart prepare him room, heaven and nature sing. So as we prepare our hearts right now for, for communion and for song, let me remind you of this. Don't forget it. When you cannot see God at work, you gotta remember he's still working. 
He still worked. The Bible says that when they nailed Jesus to the wood and they hung him high on that tragically good Friday for the whole world to see, the sky turned dark and the veil was torn. And Jesus cried out, Eli, Eli, lemastabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But in the moment Jesus felt most forsaken, God was doing the greatest work in the world. While Jesus was at his lowest, God was pulling you and me back from death, hell, and the grave. John 16, here on earth, you will have many trials, but take heart, Jesus is overcome. So listen, listen to me. Your depression, your anxiety, your doubt, your heartache, it gets treated when you dream of holiday cheer. It gets treated when you see a, a good therapist that helps you challenge your unhealthy thoughts. But it only gets defeated, not treated, but unseated from your heart when you cling to the victory of the incarnate Son of God who died for our peace and rose for our victory. Do you know him? I pray that you do. So I'll plant this seed again on December 31st uh, at 11.59 p.m. December 31st, that's New Year's. Yes, it's New Year's, okay? I will be in this baptistry over here. We believe that in this series, people are gonna want deliverance. They're gonna want Jesus. They're gonna want to give their life to him again for the first time in a long time or the, for, for the first time ever. If that's something that you wanna do, I wanna encourage you, grab that QR code or grab a pastor, grab somebody over the next couple weeks, sign up and let's celebrate the New Year's the best way that I can think of. And I'm gonna put John 16, 33 up there. And I want you to reflect just for a moment before we sing, reflect, reflect. What is the Lord speaking to you today through this passage?